Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up will mean a great deal to us and will help us reach more people. Our goal is to allow the wisdom, honesty, and encouragement found in the life and writings of Henry Nouwen to speak to a world hungry for meaning. Now let me introduce you to my friend Paul Pinkowski. And together we're talking about something that's been really important to both of us. Voices for Peace. Paul, I would like to ask you what it's felt like to be in this kind of partnership. Tell me a little bit about the partnership and how it came to be. The partnership almost seemed to come out of nowhere. I was wanting to find some way of gathering people together to uh, to explore the Christian roots of resistance and nonviolence, uh, the Christian roots of uh, peacemaking, and really didn't know where to start apart from the fact that I thought I would like to get Jim Forrest over from the Netherlands to uh, to speak with us. So I just really chatted it up with several friends, uh, one of whom spoke with you, Karen, and you called me up and asked, what was I doing trying to get Jim Forrest to Toronto? And a conversation started. And the conversation broadened because you came back and said, you know, the people from the Center for uh, Citizens for Peace and Justice might be interested in this. Uh, Joe Gunn from the Citizens for Public Justice, I thought he would be a great partner in this endeavor. And uh, so in in essence, they joined the team. And then uh, Joe brought somebody else to the table that I didn't know, Father Bob Holmes. Yeah, from the Basilian uh, Center for Peace and Justice. And it just turned out to be the most wonderfully um, creative collaboration. Uh, everybody was able to come together and, and talk frankly about what their vision was, uh, put ideas on the table, uh, sort out logistics, uh, talk about financing. Um, I had the sense that everybody wanted to go in the same direction and also the sense that nobody's, nobody's ego got in the way. What was important was the work and the willingness to support each other all the way, all the way along. We had a great first year. We had a great Voices for Peace. Uh, it was really encouraging. The Basilians gave us this wonderful facility to be in. And one of the things that I encouraged everybody with was that we should record everything because there's lots of people who would be interested in this but couldn't come to the table, couldn't be in Toronto for this event. So that's one of the wonderful things about Voices for Peace. You can find links to all of the talks that were given in the first year, which was Uh, Our first year was 2018. Now we've just done one called um, Voices for Peace again, our second annual Voices for Peace. And actually all the talks are online and available to anyone who would like to to hear. We had some wonderful, wonderful speakers. Tell me a little bit about Kathy Kelly. Kathy was extraordinary. When you realize what she's done in terms of going, I think, 25, 26 times to Iraq. She's been in Afghanistan multiple times. She's been in Gaza. She's talking about climbing mountains and being on icy slopes to visit with people. And you look at her and you go, are you kidding me? She's five foot nothing, wiry, 67 years old. And you go, 
that person can't be doing that. But she's absolutely driven to speak for peace. And she brought the most amazing stories. And when you listen to her, you'll hear her use the most powerful metaphor of surveillance as she begins her talk, because she she contrasts the surveillance blimps hanging above Kabul and looking invasively into people's lives with her students who are on the ground or in the mountains talking face-to-face with people about their lives, but about what their needs are, what their concerns are, what they've lost, what's going on in their families, and then coming back and finding ways to try and address those things. It's just amazing. We were so honored to have her come in from Chicago for this particular uh, talk, and I would encourage all of you that are listening to uh, continue to listen. We will finish our conversation here by taking you right into the very first event of Voices for Peace this year. But I'd also like to hear from you, Paul, where are we going next? Is this just, are we just going to have two Voices for Peace, or shall we do it again? I'd like to do it again. And I think as we've, we've talked, uh, I think there's been a consensus that there's a deep concern about the violence to the earth. What's happened to, uh, what's happening to landscape, what's happening to resources, what's happening to people's homes, and which also leads us to violence and the suffering of the earth's people, especially indigenous people. And I think we want to look at that this year. Anyway, we want to find the right people to try and help speak to us and explore those issues and resource us so that we can speak to those issues with a stronger voices. One of the visions that we have, and I don't know whether we'll be able to pull it off, but I hope we will, is that we'd actually like to stream our next Voices for Peace so that people could could uh, enter into the conversation right across North America. Uh, but, you know, on that note, I'd like to take you to the second annual Voices for Peace. I know that you'll enjoy it, and you can listen to it all in total, or you can take parts and pieces. Please go to our website, henrynowen.org. You'll find lots of wonderful resources. We are committed to sharing this because it was deeply important to Henry Nowen, the role of the peacemaker, the fact that Jesus calls us peacemakers. He calls us to be people of peace and calls us to be peacemakers. So hence, this is what we are choosing to do. We hope you'll become part of that audience that joined with us for the second annual Voices for Peace conference here in Toronto. It's our privilege uh, this morning to listen to a, a very strong voice for creative nonviolence from Kathy. And uh, Kathy and my paths have crossed together a few times. And first one was um, in my CPT training, the year 2000. She came in to be the trainer for an action where we were risking arrest. That's when I found out that she's experienced this. And uh, in fact, she was leading and, and organizing delegations to go to Iraq when it was under sanctions. And they were carrying in medicines for the people there, totally illegally. And uh, I met her again on the 70th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. We were in sackcloth and ashes doing penance for the nuclear um, nastiness of Los Alamos. And I discovered that she's been doing anti-nuclear work a lot and uh, 
planted corn on a nuclear silo and spent some time in prison for that. Met again at Camp Micah on the staff at Leadership Camp for Peace and Justice here in Ontario. And, uh, and she brought the, uh, the wonderful information about the blue scarves and convinced me to go to Kabul, to Afghanistan, to meet the Afghan peace volunteers. And these are young people in a war zone who are going out saying, enough war, enough inequality, enough climate crisis, we have to change it all. It was powerful. So I invite you to listen to a very strong voice for peace as we welcome Kathy Kelly. Maybe I'll just prescind from what Bob was saying. Um, when you're in Kabul, almost anywhere you are, you look up and there's an annoying, big, huge blimp floating over the city. There are actually four of them, and I don't even know if the cameras are turned on or off, but the message is clear. We're watching you. So the young people that Bob mentioned, uh, they are some of the most idealistic and um, welcoming and interesting people I've ever met. And it's true, they're in all the traumas you would ever associate with a war zone, and now Afghanistan is suffering from drought in 21 out of 34 provinces. The refugee camps are soaring in population. But these kids are just undeterred. They, they do their surveillance. And here's how they do it. They take the notebook and a ballpoint pen and they go up the mountainsides, and often in the winter when it's cold. And I mean, they took me with them one time, and they had to drop me off in the home of a widow. I fainted once I got up there, and the, the roads are so icy, I couldn't even see how they were picking their way up. And so they left me with Kharib, and there she was in her little tiny hovel, and she was shelling almonds constantly as she would serve me green tea to revive me so she wouldn't have me till the spring you know, thaw came. <laughs> And, and, and then I noticed she'd bag up almonds and her son would go down the mountain with the almonds to sell them at the marketplace and then she, um, she would put all the shells in her small oven, the Bukhari, and that was her source of fuel. So these youngsters that I know go up and they get to know through their surveys the answers to very, very important questions. How many times in a week does your family eat beans? Of course, they don't even ask about meat. What is your source of water? And I had seen women lugging the water up that mountainside because the rent is cheaper the higher you go because there's no water and there aren't really sewage and sanitation facilities either. And that gets recorded. And then the very important question, what is the rent? And then who does earn an income? And if the main income earner is under 13 years of age, then that survey kind of boosts up to the top. And then my young friends puzzle over all their surveys after they've done their surveillance. And they try to decide, okay, which 30 Pashto women can we enlist to sew the very, very heavy duvets? And they'll get paid a meager wage and then those will be given away free of charge at the refugee camps. So 30 Pashto women, 
30 Tajik women, 30 Hazara women, and that's how, in a very practical way, they try to overcome the ethnic differences. But it's very hard, because then the 31st woman is at the door. I sometimes call them the women who won't go away. And they do what I would do. When you say, I'm sorry, we've only got 30 spots in their field, they sit down. I get it. But it's oh so difficult. But my young friends in their teenage years are also leaving themselves wide open, so vulnerable, as Jean said, to hearing, to feeling the love of neighbor, the love of neighbor. And so I've been so very, very grateful to see this other kind of surveillance. I'm going to switch on this theme of drones, though. I want to tell you that I was in Gaza during what was called the Operation Cast Lead. Uh, from 11 at night till 1 in the morning, and then a lull, and then again from 3 until 6, every 11 minutes, a bomb exploded. I know nothing about ballistics, nothing. But pretty soon, I could figure out, okay, that was a 500-pound bomb dropped by maybe an F-15. And that was an Apache helicopter firing a Hellfire missile. And the reason I began to distinguish between these hideous sounds which should never exist is because the children taught me. So there was a ceasefire and you could go outside. I'll never forget Om Yusuf sitting down in an overstuffed chair and this was the family that was housing me and befriending me and the back of her hand hit her forehead and she said, never before. Did I think I could survive this first time I breathe in all these 22 days? I am so afraid for my children. But the children, resilient as children are and always will be, next thing I know they've got me by the hands and they're dragging me outside and they want to show me a little bit of the outside because we've been cooped up for so long. But also, and I've seen this again and again in war zones, the children want to help their parents. They know their parents have been mad with fear. They know something's wrong. And so the kids had found a tarp and they were collecting firewood. And their faces were gleaming because they knew that their parents would be pleased. And then they'd have some fuel because in Gaza there was no electricity and no real source for fuel. And then along came an elderly fellow, and he looked at me, and he sized up the situation, and he said to me, he spoke English, so um, you might be wondering why I don't help these children, because it was kind of hard for them, really. It was getting heavy. And he said, but you see, if I pick up a piece of wood, they might think I've picked up a gun and the children could be killed. And you see, at that time, I barely understood drone anything. But of course, the drone was watching, the drone was watching. And this, to me, becomes a bit of an unfortunate but spreading symbol with not only drone proliferation, but all kinds of surveillance proliferation so that people are tempted to get a little bit scared, to pull back, to not associate to not associate just at the time when we're most in need of linking together, of believing passionately that we are all part of one another, of all hands on deck together, because the planet's close to being on fire. 
It's no time to foster separation, oh, you're this and I'm that. And so I think about that man's fear, and it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Because he didn't want the children to be killed. And it is what it is. We do now live in a world where I come from, in the United States, where it's fair to say, I mean, I used to say probably to Bob way back then, well, the national religion is really shopping in the United States. Well, I don't say that anymore. In the United States, you're dangerous neighbor to the South. I believe the national religion has become militarism, selling weapons. They used to maybe make weapons to fight wars, but now in the United States, we make wars to sell weapons. That's how reckless Boeing and Raytheon and General Dynamics and Lockheed Martin have become. And I come from a group, Voices for Creative Nonviolence. When we were breaking the economic sanctions, we were voices in the wilderness, but we evolved to this different name. Anyway, our belief is that where you stand determines what you see. So from time to time, we've gone to war zones, to Iraq, to Afghanistan, to Gaza, to Lebanon. And I'm convinced that it's from the perspective from the point of view of the people who don't have the blue passport that I have, who can't escape, who are huddled, who are cowering, who are frightened because of the terrible aerial terrorism being rained down on them and other forms of military and economic war. It's from them that we learn some of the lessons we most need, the literacy, if you will, of the consequences that every war brings. Eglantine Jeb, who founded the group Save the Children, had gone out. Do you know there were sanctions imposed after World War I that were so severe that children in Germany and Austria were starving to death? So Eglantine Jeb got a flyer. It depicted the children. It said, we ought not be doing this. And of course, this is right after World War I, this hideous, terrible bloodletting. And Eglantine Jeb is arrested and charged. This is treasonous to claim that the UK should not be blockading Germany and Austria. So she was convicted, and she was fined. But the judge in her case paid the fine, and that was the first donation to a worldwide organization called Save the Children. So I kind of want to be guided by that spirit, that fire in her belly of Eglantine Jeb, who never stopped organizing. And so she also knew, listen to what's coming from the people bearing the brunt. And so I'd like to ask you to indulge me in conveying stories that I was not an eyewitness to, because there's no way that any human rights activist or peace activist is going to enter the country of Yemen. There's one flight a week. It comes from Djibouti, and the next week from Amman. The World Food Program organizes it. It's the only flight into Sana'a, the capital, for this huge populous area of northern Yemen. And the Saudi government completely controls the passenger list. And if you don't, as a World Food Program officer, carefully vet and make sure that every person on that plane either works for the United Nations or has been associated with a group with a long history of having residence and you know papers and identity in Sana'a or be a little bit beyond, then you're not getting on that plane. 
And, but it's still important to listen, to try to hear, to try to imagine, to try to understand. So I want to talk about a time in a small, remote, rural village called Arhab. In 2016, and I know this is going back a ways, but it seems to me to be a very uh, emblematic account. People didn't have water. The water table was going lower and lower and lower, and the village was getting more and more desperate, and they realized that there's no rebel group, there's no government group, there's no NGO that's going to help them dig for a well. So they decided to make a cooperative, and everybody give as much as they could. And then one person actually could give a little more, deeper pockets, and they got a rig, and they drilled, and they drilled, and they didn't reach water, and they didn't reach water, and they were beginning to reach despair, and then all of a sudden, one night, the water was reached, and so the whole village celebrated. People danced, people sang, people shared what they had, they'd hit water, this is a matter of life and death, this is certainly worth celebrating, it's good they formed the cooperative. That night, the Saudi warplane, no doubt using surveillance, assisted by the United States with a Raytheon manufactured weapon hit that group of celebrants. And the weapon, when it exploded, sent out shards that traveled eight times the speed of sound. People were decapitated, people were maimed, but it's close to the middle of the night. So the next morning, people came out, some searching for their loved ones, some Curious, you know, what happened? Could they be of help? And some people weren't able to grab their children back. And you know how curious children can be. So the children had run out too. About 100 people had gathered and the warplanes returned. And the survivors said that it went on for it seemed like a couple of hours. And the warplanes would even chase the people as they were trying to run away. And 31 people in that remote area with no hospital nearby died, and there were about 62 others wounded. And they were only trying to help each other. The United States has said that it can go after, in the war on terror, the great war on terror, it can go after any Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula group and justify it because of the war on terror. So in another remote village, called Al-Ghal, in 2017. A group of Navy SEALs, some of the most professionally trained military in the world, landed in their helicopter to go after what they considered to be a high-value target living in Al-Ghal, in Yemen. The first story was in Yemen, too. Did I mention that? Okay. So we're in Yemen still. And they landed, and they did what they do in night raids, you know, break down the door, hog tie or at least handcuff all of the men, lock the women in a, behind a locked door, go through systematically ripping mattresses apart, emptying cloth. But there was a, a huge din and a cry, and what they hadn't counted on is that the kinspeople, the neighbors, came running, and they were armed, and in no time that helicopter was disabled. So now you've got the Navy SEALs with nowhere to go. So they called in air support, which I believe is aerial terrorism. It was all very chaotic. The air 
support, didn't quite know where to hit. At some point, it seems a grenade flew, and Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owen, a Navy SEAL, was killed. That same night, Fahim Mosin, a 30-year-old woman, is huddled in her hut, doesn't know where to go, what to do, and suddenly a missile ripped through this little tiny hut. And she's in there with her sister, and between them, they have 12 children with them. And Fahim, at 30, being the oldest, has to decide what to do. And so she didn't know, do you stay? Maybe another missile comes, or shepherd the children out into the darkness. And of course, how could Fahim Mosin know that just the heat of her body could signal a message to the people with the weapons? And so she gathered the children. She had her newborn infant in the crook of her arm. She held the hand of her five-year-old. As soon as she stepped outside, this is all from the witness of the five-year-old, the helicopter gunship sensed her heat, and she was killed instantly. The infant survived, and the five-year-old was the eyewitness. And a very brave journalist, Iona Craig, journeyed to Al-Gayal, and got that story. Now, people in the United States already knew that there had been an, att an attack, but they wouldn't have heard where. President Trump, in his first speech to the Senate and the Congress, extolled the widow of Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owen. There was a four-minute standing ovation. She was trembling with all these cameras focused on her. He shouted over the crowd, you know he's in heaven, you know he's looking down at you now, you know he'll never be forgotten. But nobody ever even knew that that same night, 26 people in that village were killed. And 10 of them were children under 13 years of age, and 6 of them were women. And so what do we learn from the five-year-old who testified in Al-Ghayal? I'm from the United States. We must learn that lesson of the wickedness of exceptionalism. The idea that somehow we exceptional U.S. people have a bigger right to all of the resources and a bigger right to life than Fahim Mosin and those children. Much more recently, at the entrance to a hospital, again in a remote rural place in Yemen, the hospital is the Kitaf Hospital, people were assembling to bring people in need, the workers were just coming, there was a kind of a gas station right next to the hospital entrance, and all of a sudden a Saudi warplane, again using a Raytheon weapon, bombed the hospital. And seven people were killed and four of them were children. Now, probably the saddest tweet I've ever heard or seen came from Doctors Without Borders, Médecins Sans Frontières. And they tweeted out, has bombing hospitals become the new norm? Because you see, this wasn't the first time a hospital in Yemen was bombed. In fact, you might have heard Brigadier General Asiri mentioned in conjunction with the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, 
Well, I first started to read about him because the Saudis had bombed a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Yemen, and the bombing went on for hours. And so Ban Ki-moon, who at the time was the Secretary General of the UN, had said to the Saudis, you can't bomb hospitals. And Brigadier General Asiri, maybe a bit tongue-in-cheek, said, oh, we'll check with our American counterparts for more and better information about targeting. Well, that was October 27th of 2016. Just two weeks earlier, the United States had bombed a Doctors Without Borders hospital in Kunduz in northern Afghanistan. And the bombing had gone on every 15 minutes. A C-130 transport outfitted with Beaufort cannons and Gatling guns had circled the hospital, fired incendiary devices right at the hospital, ICU, and emergency room. Immediately, the hospital staff notified NATO and the Afghan government and the United Nations and the United States forces and said, you're bombing a hospital. At 15-minute intervals for three hours, the attack continued. So there was a young boy named Khaled Ahmed. And I got to know him because I have O-negative blood. And um, if I go to Kabul, the doctors at the Italian hospital, it's called the Surgical Center for Victims of War, are very happy to see me because my blood can be kind of used. So I'm donating blood, and at the end of it, I'm with my young friends, and I said, do you still have somebody from the bombing of the Kunduz Hospital? I heard that you took in 91 patients, even though it was a five-hour drive. That's how desperate people were. And the Italian doctor said, oh, Lord, yeah, he, you take your friends. He's so lonely. There was one survivor, Khaled Ahmed. And Khaled had been told by his mother the day he went to the hospital before the bombing hit, my son, stay home. It's too dangerous. And he said, Mom, they're not going to hit a hospital. And 359 people were treated last week, and 50 of them were children. If I don't show up, who can? I have to go, Mom. So she said, my son, be careful. Off he went. And he did his shift. He and the chief pharmacist went down in the basement. They're awakened at 1 o'clock in the morning by a huge explosion. They run up the stairs. The patients they'd been treating were dying in their own beds and flames and ceilings collapsing. There was nothing they could do. And so they found security. And the security people said, look, disable your cell phones, whatever you do, because these aerial machines can target your cell phone. They've got laser devices. And so they took apart their cell phones. And then the security people said to the chief pharmacist, look, there's the entrance. They're not bombing outside of the emergency room in the ICU, and it's a compound about the size of a football field. So they just said, run for it. And off went the chief pharmacist, and he made it outside. And so then they turned to Khaled Ahmed, and Khaled's heart was pounding. He was so terrified, because you could see that the bombing had started again. And they said, come on, man, you got to run. And so he ran for the entrance. He had one foot outside the door. He took shrapnel in the back. He fell to the ground and he was bleeding profusely. In Afghan tradition, if you know that your death is near, and if you can connect with your father, you do so to say you're sorry for anything you ever did to hurt your father or the family. But Khaled has taken his cell phone apart. Half his body is paralyzed. He's starting to get dizzy. 
but he managed with one arm to fish the cell phone out with his hand put together the cell phone and the battery, and he reached his mother and weakly said, I must talk to my father. And he talked to the father. The mother's in a panic, and the father got from him exactly where he was. The first entrance in a ditch inside the door. He'd rolled himself into a ditch. The father said, my son, take off your vest. Put it underneath you. We'll send help. It'll stop the bleeding. And relatives lived nearby. They sped over to exactly the spot where, and they found him. They managed to put their hands on a body bag. They put his body on the body bag. He arrived at consciousness very briefly, saw he was being put in a body bag, and managed to say, I'm alive. And then he lost consciousness. The doctors in the Italian hospital saved his life. When I met him, he might have had something like, I don't know, survivor's guilt, That day, 42 people had been killed. 13 of them were hospital staff. Three were doctors. When I saw him, he was sallow in complexion. He was very, very thin. He had an internal catheter, an IV. He could only walk with assistance, but he had survived. And then he asked the young friends, who's she? And they said, well, she's like our grandmother. And um, then they heard, she's from America. And he asked me, why would your people want to do this to us? We were only trying to help people. Why would your people want to do this to us? We were only trying to help people. And so another lesson from another village. When people want to help one another, let them do it. Practice the works of mercy and not the works of war. I have a friend, a Jesuit priest, his name is Steve Kelly, and he's in a county jail and has been for a year now. A year in a county jail is hard time. The Glynn County Jail in Georgia, in the United States. And Steve Kelly, with six others, believed that it was his duty to follow the injunction from the book of Isaiah, beat your swords into plowshares and your spears into pruning hooks. They went to a Trident nuclear submarine base. And those Trident submarines each carry the equivalent of 1,800, I'm sorry, 1,825 Hiroshima missiles. 1,825. And the United States operates fleets, and they crawl along the ocean. They'll also likely cause the extinction of the right whale. Anyway, the Kings Bay Plowshares 7 did minimal damage, really. I think Patrick took a hammer to some replica of a D-5 missile uh, that's mounted on top of a nuclear weapon. And they're facing 20 years in prison. And... So I get these little tiny postcards. The Glynn County Jail will only let somebody correspond, either writing out or receiving in, through the means of a pre-stamped postcard that's like the tiniest index card you ever would have used. And you can only write in ballpoint pen. And um, Steve inevitably, once a week, writes to me, Kathy of, his, his, this is Steve Kelly and I'm Kathy Kelly, so he calls me Kathy of Kellydom Midwest. And I realize that in Steve's cartography of the world, he really means it. 
He divides the world up in terms of the communities of faith and vigor that want to change the world and save the world. And he is simply not obeisant to the people who are willing to wage wars over the issue of where a border is drawn or which politician has their hand in your pocket. He really believes in border free. Witness these scarves that the kids from Afghanistan make. He really, really, really believes this. But we live in a world where it is pretty confusing because I think the reason the Saudis are going after Yemen is because they don't want to respect any kind of a, this is Yemen, this is Saudi Arabia. They want to say, look, you know, we could use some more resources. We're, you know, cash deep and uh, hungry for more resources. Yemen's got fisheries. Yemen has offshore oil extraction potential. Yemen has the control over that chokehold port, the Bab al-Mandab. And Saudi Arabia has weapons. Why does Saudi Arabia have weapons? Because the weapon peddlers, many of them based even here in Canada, but certainly in the United States, keep on selling. And the mine extraction has got some pretty strong history hereabouts as well. And so our work, our job, our necessary action, as necessary as is the action of the young people that go up the mountainsides to do their surveys, our work is to keep promoting the strong belief, the unshakable belief that we are all part of one another. That we are all part of one another. And so I want to end by thanking you because I know in many ways I'm with the choir and that's a great delight. And I know that in many ways you've figured out how to put one foot firmly planted amongst those who bear the brunt of war because the resources they need go instead to forms of militarism or plunder. And you've kept the other foot firmly planted among people who want to transform this world and our communities. And isn't that where we get equilibrium? Isn't that where we manage to find the strength to rise? I want to bring to mind the image of Francis, Pope Francis, who is deeply, deeply troubled by what's been happening in Sudan and South Sudan, and so he made his residence, the Santa Marta residence, open to people from South Sudan to come together for a retreat. This was about a month ago. And the retreat had been in planning for three years. So it was a pretty, um, uh, what would I say, orchestrated retreat. But th the theme of it was reciprocal forgiveness. And the two South Sudanese rival warriors um, had broken so far 12 previous agreements. And it was so crucial, a matter of life and death, so that people can get beyond this terrible war to get this next agreement to hold. So Pope Francis, at the end, when he was asked to make some concluding remarks after these two guys had shook hands on yet another agreement, he got up off of his chair, broke with all protocol, got down on his knees, and kissed the feet of one of the warriors. And then he's breathing heavily. It's laborious for him. The warrior helps him up. Everybody's kind of surprised. He gets to his feet, walks over to the other, gets down on his knees, and kisses the feet 
of the warrior. And I think maybe this was his way of saying, yeah, in terms of reciprocal forgiveness, we colonizing people have something to be accountable for as well. And so led, led by Pope Francis, by these young kids who go up the mountaintops to do their surveillance, by people who give their witness and their testimony in Yemen because maybe that's all they can do to try to stop the terrible hemorrhaging of war. Led in such directions and with gratitude, may we link arms, give each other a pat on the back all the time for all the good that's been done, and move forward. Locked in winter, we have actually snow this morning here, <laughs> summer lies, gather our bones together with Pope Francis and rise. Thank you. because I'm sure this talk has really alivened a lot of things within you. So, Bobby, you have the mic. Okay. Who has some questions? I can't have the first question. There seemed to be an implication that there was a lot less guilt here, but I'd like to hear what's going on in Canada that needs changing. Well, thank you. I'm a bit of a, um, an outsider, but one thing I want to say that's going on in Canada that is causing change, and I think that all of you can seriously take that pat on the back, your culture has created a literature that is enlivening, challenging, um, quite beautiful. Jim Loney very kindly supplies me with books that I, I've just been like uh, mentor experiences that I, are pure gift and wonderful, wonderful literature. So I can't help but think that some of the good that you're seeing happening is actually, uh, a, I mean, you can't calculate what happens when a teacher teaches the classes, what happens when Camp Micah has all these kids coming out, what happens when people are doing the vigils and all of the different kinds of witnesses. So I think that is making a difference, a serious difference. Um, I, I, I am sad to know that Toronto is home to some pretty, um, uh, what would I say, ambitious mining companies, and their ambitions include trying to extract minerals from wherever they can take them, or even cutting off mountaintops, leaving the waste behind. So that is certainly quite, quite difficult. I, um, maybe I could just briefly say that um, Bob mentioned that I planted corn on top of nuclear missile silo sites, and I don't know why I don't go out and do it more often, but maybe not corn, maybe something else. But the day I planted that corn, this young soldier, um, I'm kneeling down, handcuffed, you know, and um, I, I started talking to him because I just, I, I'm, I'm sort of preternaturally extroverted, I think. And, um, and then I asked him, do you think the corn will grow? 
And he said, I don't know, ma'am, but I sure hope so. And then I said, would you like to say a prayer? Yes, ma'am. So I said the St. Francis Peace Prayer, got to, amen. And then he asked me, ma'am, would you like a drink of water? And I said, oh, yes, please. So I still remember that I saw his hands on the canteen, squeezing the canteen, pouring water down ma'am's throat. So what did he do with the gun? Because he had a big rifle. Did he put it down? Did he let it go slack on his shoulder? I can't tell you, but I do know that that question, would you like a drink of water? As he's standing on top of a nuclear missile, and it's his job to protect that missile, that question is important. Because what if we could ask to the indigenous people here in Canada, would you like clean water cleared of mercury? Wouldn't that be great? What if we could say to the children in Yemen suffering from cholera, a third outbreak, would you like clean, clear water? Wouldn't that be great? We, what if we could say we care a lot more about that than about these weapons? Or what if we could say to next generations, would you like a planet that still has water? We care so much more about that than about our militarism. But we can't because there's a vice-like grip on our education. We don't get to pose the very, very necessary questions. Instead, we get distracted constantly. Sports, entertainment, that seems never to change. And we're missing the boat on some very, very essential questions. So I would say water and mining and also weapon selling, peddling, profiteering, that goes on in Canada as well. How do we link arms uh, and be present uh, for the people that you described, those young people in Afghanistan? Mm, thank you. Well, um, it used to be that we'd go over to Afghanistan and stay a month and a half and think nothing of it. Now the youngsters have said, uh, you know, it's kind of dangerous for us to have Westerners come here, so how about a 10-day trip and come one or two at a time? When we first went, you know, 27 of us went piling over. So um, people can go to Afghanistan, and if you've had experience traveling to war zones uh, or in some kind of high-stress situation, and maybe you could talk to Bob, he's been, um, we, we'd be very, very pleased. Something that these youngsters do that just amazes me. I mean, you know, they, they used to initially do it in a pup tent with no electricity on the side of a mountain, but they've managed to figure out international phone calls. So every month, on the 21st of every month, without fail, there's an international Skype call for three hours to accommodate different time zones. And not so many, some of them speak English, not all, but there's a very well-trained... Um, a Singaporean medical doctor who speaks eight languages and has been with them since they got themselves started, and Hakim will do the translation. And you learn a lot. You know, they manage to get people representative of all kinds of issues talking together. Um, they have a website called OurJourneyToSmile.com. You just spell that out, OurJourneyToSmile.com. And if you're ever in a kind of down, bleak, glum mood, I really recommend going to that website, you know, randomly. You could almost pick anything 
and it's likely to give a sense of uplift. They're very energetic kids. They've documented every action they've taken, and, and so that's there also, and it is a, a real means of access. It's good also to keep our eye on the people's peace movement. Um, there's a, a movement of people from the Helmand province in the south of Afghanistan, and Mujib Mashal from the New York Times covers it pretty well. Um, and they've been walking. During the month of Ramadan last year, they walked. You know, and during Ramadan, you don't take a drink of water till the sun goes down, and you don't eat anything till the sun. But they walked all through the daytime in the blistering heat, and they're walking for peace. They've had it with war. And they're like their young friends in Kabul now, having met with them several times, they say, blood cannot wash away blood. We want to abolish war. And there's another group of people in Pakistan, walking, walking, walking. I think that you know, we're beginning to see people who bear the brunt of war saying, we're just not going to go along with it any longer. And I actually think their counterparts are here in the United States and Canada amongst the youth who say, you know what? We're not going to go along with the environmental degradation that's being handed off to us. We see a climate catastrophe coming, and we're going to demand that things change so that we can have a future. So I think we, we're starting to see it. You know, sometimes things tip. You don't quite know it's coming, and then all of a sudden, there it is. Um, for what it's worth, um, in the 70s when the Vietnam War was going on, um, I knew a man who had a tool and dime making business, and he accepted a contract to build the metal seats which became part of the helicopters that went over to Vietnam. And I remember talking to him, and this was a man who had experienced World War II, and um, I was sort of gently trying to say, you know, besides trying to feed your family and keep your business going, why would you want to perpetrate that? And this was a subcontract for him. And so listening to right now, I'm thinking in terms of Canada or the United States, uh, who are the individuals or companies who accept these subcontracts? They build the, the bits and pieces of the war machine. And so, again, without persecuting people, maybe we could find out who some of these people are um, and maybe approach them and say, okay, you know, why do you want to do this? And do you see the bigger picture? Well, thank you. You know, it was because of Canadians that the um, Alliant Tech shut down their facility in Minneapolis, Minnesota, because the Canadian engineers did listen to the Minnesotans who'd been vigiling at that facility once a week and got arrested and went into court. And at one point, they, under, they started to understand the dimensions of this charge, that they were committing war crimes by being complicit. And they said, you know what, we're not going to work on that. And so that whole plant shut down. It moved elsewhere in the United States, but really it was the Canadian engineers who got that going. Um, if you have any groups doing any kind of business with General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, or Boeing. Um, those are the four bigs that are pushing the um, weapons industry. I need some help from anybody here who might more specifically answer the question, though. Canadian involvement in weapons making? 
Could you say that once again? So the guide system for the cruise missiles. Thank you. Also investments. You know, if any of your pension funds or other funds are invested in companies that have to do with weapon making, you can say we want to divest, divest from that. Thank you. Kathy, it's, uh, it's been a, a real honor to hear your, you talking. It's been a long time I haven't heard a sister or a brother from the United States directly, personally talk about the militarism of the United States. It's so, it's so overwhelming and so grotesque, the, the militarism of the United States, that we as Canadians often forget how we're in, involved and it's usually very, very invisible in Canada. In fact, it's, in many, many ways, it's very hypocritical. Because in many ways, we figure if there's going to be something really big happening, some nuclear war, that the U.S. will somehow take care of it. And that leaves, <laughs> well, that leaves us not doing a lot about our own militarism. I would just like to invite us to do one small thing because whether it's planting corn, as you did, or whether it's signing a petition, every single thing I think you would agree is important that we do. I brought with me, as I do when I'm with any group, uh, well, what do you call it when you sign something? <laughs> a petition, um, getting old. Um, and all it says is urgent, cancel the Saudi weapons deal. I really thank you for mentioning that Canada is actually part of selling weapons Saudi Arabia. And for anyone who doesn't know, the mass murder and starvation and the cholera epidemic in Yemen has a lot to do with, directly with Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is sort of leading the coalition there. And so we, the government of Canada, with our money and our resources, has considered selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, and it's only because a number of Canadians have spoken out against it. But they're still, they're kind of waiting for it to die down, and they're still considering, if you can imagine, considering selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. It's almost unimaginable. And so it's quite crucial right now to let them know that we have not forgotten. So I would like to pass around uh, a petition. All it says is, given the horrific suffering in war-torn Yemen, mass murder, starvation, and cholera, when will the Canadian government announce the cancellation of the Saudi arms deal? Thank you. And uh, so if you can make sure it doesn't get lost, the, the, I'll just pass it around. The statistic okay. is that 85,700 children have died as from disease and starvation caused by the war. And another 113,000 are estimated to have died um, directly in the war. And who is fighting that war? You know, the desperation is so high in the Horn of Africa and in South Sudan that the Saudis now go over to South Sudanese families and they'll offer a family $10,000 if the family will give them their teenager and these are 16-year-olds, children, who then are conscripted into Saudi militias, and that's who's fighting going up 
the coast of Yemen along the Red Sea. And those battles have been going on for two years at least. And, and it's the way to kind of try and take the vital port of Hodeidah. And um, families are so desperate in South Sudan that they'll actually pay a $1,000 bribe to get their child into the militia. Now this is cynical, this is terrible. And uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, went on national TV and said to the Saudi public, a prolonged war is in our favor. Imagine saying that prolonging this war is in their favor. Now they are spending a huge amount of money every single day on the war, but they want to take the resources. And it's uh, bin Salman who orchestrated it. Certainly the former dictator in Yemen, uh, his name was uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh, he's since been assassinated. He was kind of selling off the country, privatizing, uh, was a dictator for 33 years. He was replaced by a fellow uh, who was his deputy minister, who was never elected, Abdurrahman Mansur Hadi. Hadi lives in Riyadh. He has no governance. You know, he's recognized as the internationally recognized government of Saudi Arabia, he's been in exile for So it's completely the Saudi-led coalition intervening in the conflict in another country, and without the United States support, they couldn't continue. I think Bob, oh, thanks, Joe. Kathy, thank you. I, I heard you speak in Waterloo a few years ago, and I, I had a chance to read your book, Other Lands Have Dreams, and and again this morning, what, what I like best about your talk, I mean, I like, I like hanging out with you too, but what I like <laughs> best too. about your talks, or what I find most powerful is you tell stories of people, um, the people on the ground and how conflict and war impacts and you name them. And I just wonder, for those of us who want to speak out against militarism in our own country, do you have any advice in terms of how to tell those stories or how we can do a better job of hearing those stories? Mm -hmm. I mean, just the one today that there were 26 people killed in the same conflict where that Navy SEAL was killed. I mean, that's such an important story to, for us to learn to tell. I'm a teacher, so I, I have, I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. I need mm -hmm. to be a better storyteller. Well... Tim, I, what I'm doing now is rereading George Bernard Shaw, because <laughs> that's what he did. You know, he he told stories. He was he had a lot of contradictions going on, I know, in his life. But um, I've relied a lot on a journalist, a Scottish young woman who formerly was a jockey, riding horses and training. Um, her name is Iona Craig, and she's Muslim, and she speaks Arabic, and she's very brave. She did get um, a Polk Award for her journalism, but she's the one who uh, managed to get to Al-Ghayal and broke that story. Um, some, I, I have a lot of gripes and grievances with the New York Times, but I have to say that a lot of times their reporters will go in there and dig until they get an actual story that will bring readers in. So I've been following Declan Walsh, W-A-L-S-H, uh, and then I think it was Kirkpatrick that broke the story about Arhab, that village with the water rig. Um, anytime there's a bombing of a hospital, you know, I think one thing we could all do is just go to our own local hospital and say, to, you know, get a big sign, to bomb this site would be a war crime. 
and people aren't going to argue who are going into the emergency room or bringing their relatives or going to visit and then say, and, and the same is true when a Doctors Without Borders hospital is bombed, whether it's Afghanistan or Yemen or Syria. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of social media, I do find that it's, it's a pretty quick read if you just do hashtag Yemen and scroll down and see what the stories are that are coming up on the Twitter feed. And that's never enough. Then we have to really poke and read and research and get our facts straight. But often the sort of um, pers personal involvements of people can be found that way. There's a whole raft of literature now about the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq. There's uh, you know, many, many, many stories are coming out. Um, and then you have to know your audience, too. I, I always worry about overwhelming and, and, and making people feel so heavy. But you know, um, World War I, World War II, what was the number of people slaughtered in the combination of those wars? Was it 9.1 million people? Yeah. So, yeah. And so, um, you know, I think of Wilfred Owen, who died in the trenches of World War I. And um, probably one of my most moving memories of being in Iraq, it was right before the 2003 shock and awe bombing. And we said, well, we're going to stay, we're not going to go. But then what are we going to do all day? You know, so, so we started going over to the university and went to the English literatures, because our, our Arabic was kind of pitiful, to be honest. And, and so there were these graduate students of English literature talking with us. They were all women. And what are they reading? They're reading the poetry of Wilfred Owen, who lived through the gas attacks, but then died and you know, wrote these searing poems. And I remember we all had a lump in our throats together going over Wilfred Owen's poetry about World War I likening the warlords of World War I to Father Abraham. And, if, you know, in the Genesis story, Abraham has the dagger and he's ready to put it right through his son and kill him because he thinks that's what the great God wants. And in the Genesis story, the angel of the Lord comes and says, lay not thy hand upon the lad. But Owen so skillfully transforms it. He says that, that the sons are in trenches and parapets. And then you realize he's talking about World War I and that the old man is old Europe. And then he ends the poem by saying, the old man would not sow and slew the son and half the seed of Europe one by one. So there are these Iraqi young women in their libraries studying the poetry of Wilfred Owen under Saddam Hussein's dictatorship, and nothing gets past Saddam. So why was Saddam letting people study Wilfred Owen's pacifist poetry? I don't know, Siegfried Sassoon, maybe Owen's lover, certainly his good friend, was born and raised in Baghdad. So you don't know where these stories can sometimes take us, but we, many of us, are the descendants of people who were traumatized by a terrible bloodletting. And as Eglantine Jeb was Save the Children knew, the consequent starvation. You know, we have it in our DNA, we have it in our bones to some extent.
At the same time, late Victorian era, the great migrations caused by the Irish famine, the same time in the Maghreb, in Brazil, and in northern India, 20 to 50 million people starved to death. And we never heard that story, did we? The only reason I heard it was because I was trying to figure out what's going on in the Horn of Africa now, and it's being repeated. Karen, thank you so, so much for allowing oh, me to be here. It's been wonderful to be with all you. of you. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you'd take time to give it a stellar review or a thumbs up, or even share it with your friends and family. As well, you'll find links in the show notes for our website and any content, resources, or books discussed in this episode. There's even a link to books to get you started in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nowen. Thanks for listening. Until next time.